John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 478.AC0754, certificate number 32596. Fletcherizing. How good would you say your table manners are, John? Scale of 1 to 10. Oh, okay. Uh, it, you know, I answer every question as an essay question. I never do like a scale of 1 to 10. Nope, 1 to 10. And then I'm going to talk about Fletcherizing for an hour. <laughs> um, 1 to 10, table manners. Uh, do you consider uh, European knife and fork etiquette? Uh, to be a valid option? Yes, I actually, as a left-handed person, oh, I u- I've used European knife and fork etiquette my whole life. And, you know, left-handed people are good at it because... It's natural. It's natural. Uh, if, le- if, if, uh, the, the other way seems crazy when I watch people doing it. Well, it is crazy, but that's how I was raised. But I switched over to, I'm a half and half. I'm like somebody that writes cursive but prints one-third of the time. Uh, I, I'm a half and half, so I can't give myself higher than a seven. That's, um, well, I don't know. I don't think anyone, if you were switching up fork and knife technique, I don't know if anyone would, that would not raise any eyebrows. I think it would. You think at a state dinner, people would. I think, you know, I think to, to cut, to cut with your right and then put your knife down, switch over and use your fork with your right. If you then switch sometimes and are using your fork, well, if you elbow the lady next to you, fork her, with your left, and her, her lorgnette falls into her cleavage, putting your meat into your mouth with an upside down fork half the time. I think you have to be. I think consistency nope. is the. Nobody's watching you that much. Maybe at a first date. But this is we're talking about etiquette here. It's not a question of if people are watching you. It's no. a question of etiquette only exists if noticed. Well, and also it's like, it's it, like Schrodinger's fork. God is watching you. <laughs> Do you think that's how table manners are determined? <laughs> At the pearly gates. I'm sorry, John. You, sorry. Had, you had your elbows on the table. I noticed. That's the other thing. Like casual, so much of my dining now is casual dining, in-home dining, 100% in-home dining. So I'm conscious of table manners because I'm trying to uh, impart to my daughter the importance of not blowing your nose in your napkin at the table or, you know, or she comes to the table with wants to read a book while we're eating. Um, 
And, you know, we must uphold some standards in this coronavirus time. You can't just let everything go to hell. Yeah, table manners are really taking a hit in our house <laughs> during the pandemic. Like you can't sit with, you can't have headphones on, but, um, but at home, I mean, I put an elbow on the table. Sure. It's just, it's How can just, you not? But if I were at a state dinner, I would know what to do. Let's 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 call it that. But I can't give myself more. Than it's that. also not that hard. You know, right. you, people are intimidated by an array of forks, but you just go outside in. Outside right? in, yeah. Uh, really, the fork and knife thing reveals how much of table manners is a stupid social construct anyway. Don't lick your knife. Certainly, don't lick your knife. <laughs> <laughs> would you do that at a state dinner? At a state dinner? I guess it depends on who the president is. Don't wipe your knife on your pants. Okay, uh, so, so there's stuff like that, which is certainly kind of viscerally gross. You'd think independent of culture, right? But then on the one hand, but then on the other hand, think about Asian cultures where it's um it's unremarkable or even polite to really smack your lips, slurp or slurp the ramen because that you know that gets the the hot broth in faster and fresher. It's a it's utilitarian, but I find slurping makes food taste better. Oh uh, sure, or eating with your you know, chewing with your mouth open makes food taste better. You've got to aerate it. So a, a lot of our <clears throat> restrictions are actually just social mores that go against the pleasures of eating. They're just all made up. In France, you're not supposed to cut your salad with a knife. And I think it dates <clears throat> back to a time when uh, it wasn't good for the knife to get salad oils and, and acids on it. Interesting. Um, but How today you... we've invented stainless steel and the French should, should do whatever they want. Although uh, I don't know why you'd cut a salad with a knife. I cut a salad with a knife. A tomato, maybe. Do you, how do you, where do you stand on sticking your um, chopsticks in, standing up in the rice? Oh, see, uh, I, it would not even occur to me. I would have to be told by my host, Ken, that is a great affront to the emperor of Japan and we must <laughs> behead you. If you're eating pho, do you leave your chopsticks in the bowl or do you take them out and set them across the top of the bowl while you use the spoon? I'm not even sure what the right answer here is. I feel like if I have one of those things, I will actually set them down beside the plate on one of those little right. rock things. Right. Um, but I don't know what the, what's the what's the impulse what's the polite way to eat pho. Oh man, don't get me started. Are you supposed to leave the chopsticks in the noodles? I have no idea. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I know there is. I know there. I know there are rules about all that stuff. I just don't know. But think of all the pleasure you <clears throat> give to the the Southeast Asian restaurateurs watching a white person do it wrong. Yeah. Like, you know what I love more than anything else? Watching a white person ask for chopsticks at a Thai restaurant. Yeah, I it's know. It's such a good time because they, they think they're doing such a, they think they're such good, good, goodwill ambassadors. But that's one of these, like, that's one of these, uh, because we started eating Thai food in the early 90s, we think we're some kind of Thai food experts and we're like, <laughs> a fork for me, good sir. <laughs> right. And they're just like, whatever, guy. I was eating Pad Thai <laughs> in college. <laughs> In the mid-1990s. Did you know that in <laughs> Thailand they don't use chopsticks? But, uh, but tell me this. Do you, eat, uh, do you eat pizza with a knife and fork? No. Hmm. I'm not, I mean, Chicago style, maybe. I'll eat deep dish pizza with a knife and fork. You mean the best pizza? <laughs> Something that's arguably pizza. <laughs> Chicago pizza, in quotes. I use a knife and fork to eat pizza. To eat all pizzas? Yes, and it drives drives people crazy. Are you, I have one question, are you Donald Trump? <laughs> does he use a knife and fork to eat pizza? Yes, he does. No. Yes. Oh, that's terrible. Do you like a good well-done steak? He, he's, <laughs> no, he's besmirching the good name of all of us knife and fork pizza eaters. Defend, is it because you find, pizza is a floppy food. It is floppy. You would not eat a piece of pie with your, although I love eating a piece of pie with my hands after right. Thanksgiving. Sure, I will too, if it's punk, pumpkin pie. 
But why, why do you feel uh, Look, if I go in, is the way to go? If I go into a place called Geno's, for instance, in New York City, any one of the 600 places called Geno's in, in New York and get a slice, I'm going to fold it in half and walk down the street eating it like a piece sure. of pizza. But if I get a pizza at home and I take a hot slice out and put it on a plate to eat, I'm going to cut it with a, at least a fork. What's the downside of just picking? Is it the cheese, the, the strings of cheese? I don't like the – there's so many things. You take a bite and the whole top – all the toppings, including the cheese, all come sliding off in that first bite and then they flop in your lap. I hate that. Dylan, we got some pizza from a Greek place last week, and Dylan was so mad when that happened. He was yeah. like, they put the pepperoni under some cheese and over some other cheese, and now it's all coming off like a blanket. Yeah, it's like an avalanche. Dylan now hates the Greek people. But I think it was, it's, it's, it's all dates back to the first time I burned the roof of my mouth on a, on a mm. hot piece of pizza, and I was like, never again. And so you cut a piece, and then you can blow on it and eat it like a This is another food. case where that is the logical way to do it, and it's still not common because, again, table manners are just a huge arbitrary. Right. It's a live issue in our house right now, a lot of table manners things, because, you know, we mentioned the, uh, the slurp friendly cultures of, of East Asia. I think, I think maybe in some places, even, you know, a, a, a burp, a, a belch after dinner is mm-hmm. polite. It shows satiety and, and pleasure. Uh, but my daughter is uh, self-diagnosed misophonic. How do you say that word? <clears throat> Misophonic. Misophonic. <laughs> uh, what is Miskatonic? What is being a misophonic? Uh, she hates the telephone. No, it means she. Uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it means she is triggered by certain kinds of noises. Mis- misophonia. Is oh, so not, so it's an a- ASMR. It's an, it's the opposite of ASMR. It's RMS oh. RMSA. <laughs> <laughs> she is, and I was reading up on misophonia, which is not in the DSM yet, but. There is kind of a cluster of of symptoms, and it appears to be it appears to have a very deep um, psychological or even emotional basis in that people will often target the specific chewing noise of a specific loved one. Uh, like they don't mind repetitive noises or even eating noises in daily life, but they can't stand the way their mom chews yeah, or yeah, something. Yeah. It's so there's something going on. Being super annoyed by somebody. Yes. And it's a it it's takes a, the form of every sound you make. It's a manifestation of that. And we've all been annoyed by our parents. Yeah. That's a that's a American rite of passage. But once you notice that someone like I have a friend who sniffs and I've been friends with him for 20 years, but once I got annoyed by it, I, I'm now I'm super annoyed by it. And he's been, do, it's 20 years a habit that he has that he's not going to break it. He's not going to stop doing it. He doesn't know he's doing it. Does he listen to Omnibus? Maybe this is your big chance. <laughs> um, I think he's, he's uh, in the coronavirus times, he is, uh, he's had to take a second job and it requires that he drive long distances. And so he's listening to Omnibus now, but by the time he gets to this episode, I don't know. Anyway, Mike, stop it. <laughs> it's, it's bad for you or something. It's bad for me. If you're, I don't think it's bad. I, it, it's aerating. Uh, it's more pleasurable. It's I like, it's like slurping your ramen. It's let a nervous Mike, tick. Let Mike enjoy his, uh, his tendies. Do I have any nervous ticks? Can you think of a tick that I have besides intentionally mispronouncing words? I mean, there, I have a lot of verbal ticks. Where I say, I mean, I have all, yeah, all I kinds have, of stock phrases that I use. I can see my verbal tics. When somebody, um, when anybody ever puts down a, uh, the only time I can tell if a, an extract of omnibus is me is if I see 
I think the word sort of. Uh-huh. Like I know that's me. Well, you know, you and I have done that a lot where you where you'll write a draft of an email to send on our behalf and I'll go in and take out all the mitigating language, all the <laughs> all the like sort ofs and maybes and like and then you'll you'll I'll send it back to you and you'll put them all back in. But in spoken English it's just more of a, a t- it's a time killer. It's yeah. a, it's a uh, 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 kind yeah, of a right, thing. Yeah, a little bounce. But but neither of us have any particular tics i don't i mean i had a college roommate who had a tick that verged on neurological where he you know he would kind of tug at his collar like rodney dangerfield and kind of twist his chin in a in a kind of borderline spasmodic way and it and it it increased the longer i knew him and i kind of wonder you know what what kind of you know what anxiety i was giving my college roommate that led to this i'm sure it's my fault my high school best friend uh had braces when he was but you know, young teen, <clears throat> and it uh, it instilled in him a tick where he would kind of chew on his cheek from mm. inside, kind of do a little like side chew, and he, uh, he still does it. He's 51 years old. He's still kind of, every once in a while, like kind of suck on the side of his cheek. I know teeth suckers, and that's annoying, a little at dinner. Anyway, Caitlin just cannot stand Dylan chewing with his mouth open. Oh, it's her brother that drives her drives yes. Him crazy. Yes, and all, honestly, both the kids now in the pandemic are both just eating straight from the serving dish. Last night we could not. Caitlin was just eating fried rice out of the serving dish, and I was like, "Caitlin, just put it on your plate." And she said, "This is the vegetarian fried rice. I'm the only one eating it. This oh. serving dish is an extension of my plate." Oh, she's she's using logic now your kids are also at the age where they are going to where they must be right in the center of why why do you why a why do you care yeah. b why do we do this um, i'm a, a young person and we're going to overturn the tyranny of your don't eat out of the serving dish but thing. there's also the tension of liking to feel adult and knowing that um you know, knowing that you want to act in publicly acceptable ways now. Oh. That's my son more than my daughter, she, cause, just because he's a little older. But He wants to know the rules? Yeah. You know, he's, he, he likes to think of himself as having some kind of polish. Uh-huh. He won a church etiquette night once, like a, just kind of a table manner, you know, which, which fork do you use? And we just laughed for <laughs> like, weeks. Like a hot dog eating contest, except, <laughs> except the opposite? Yeah, it was, exactly. It was like, oh, you got to have your pinky up. He got extra points for having his pinky up when he took a drink of whatever. How, uh, ma- how many kids participated in this contest? Was it a big picnic table full of young Mormon kids all in short sleeve button down shirts? I'm imagining a dozen or a couple dozen kids. <laughs> wow. It was oddly, it was, I believe it was a team competition. Listen, you are dispelling the image of Mormonism as being super square. Yeah, like we're teaching our we're we're doing the coolest stuff, teaching table manners. <laughs> So both of our kids are eating team, out of the team table team matters. matters. That's that's where the real uh, Olympic gold is. <laughs> so both of our kids are eating out of the serving dishes. They're both just I, don't, I haven't heard a consonant in weeks because <laughs> I guess without a without a live audience. Sure, who cares? Without a peer group, they got nothing to say to you. They anyway. just don't care. You'd think that six weeks would not be enough to just turn a generation's minds to mush, but maybe we have done it. Anyway, so I think a lot about chewing now because right. because my kids are yelling at each other about chewing all the time. Masticating, we say. Oh, we would not, I would not say that in my house. <laughs> oh, no, right. It would elicit a laugh, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's no, there's no uh, mastication practice <laughs> night at, 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 at uh, church youth groups, for sure. <laughs> but no one cared about uh, chewing more than the titular figure 
of this omnibus entry, Horace Fletcher, uh, who, uh, you know, a Victorian era American. That was kind of the golden age of people being named Horace. Well, also Fletcher is a great American, uh, pioneer or not pioneer. Uh, uh, that's, that's a, that's a Yankee name from the, from the storybooks. Do you know what uh, a Fletcher is? You know, it's an occupation like a, oh, right. like, like a, 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 Cooper a Cooper carpenter. Uh, a Fletcher. No. A Fletcher makes arrows. Fletching is putting the feathers in the oh, in the back of an arrow. An arrow maker. Huh. So, but uh, this Horace Fletcher was not an uh, arrow maker. He was a a hobbyist. He worked uh, for an import firm. Uh, he was a New Englander. You're he not. Was, you're not wrong about his. He was a scrivener. <laughs> Probably did some scrivening. He was a writer, so he's. I assume. Wait, scrivening is. Does it mean any writing, or does it mean like uh, like stenographic technical writing type writing? Like, because I guess it comes from the same root as scribe and script, just the Latin for to write. But it's someone who is it someone who pr- has professional penmanship? I'm just stretching this as long as I can because I know you're googling. Well, boy, it, it some there, there's some software called Scrivener, and it has completely ruined the ability to Google the ability to, to Google, Google actual Scrivener the word Scrivener. Uh, and not and not only that, but when you get to the Wikipedia, there's not even a, a like a derivation page. Merriam-Webster says, yeah, it's it's a there is a professional angle to it. It's a public copyist or writer. Back when a pre-word processing era, you would need a room full of guys just writing stuff all day. Right. Or, or if you were not literate, you'd have to go to somebody who who hung out a shingle. Can you write this for me? I need to I need to send this to someone. Can you do do the technical writing? This also says a scrivener is a Synonym for notary public. Yeah. That, I, Have you ever considered a notary public to be a scrivener? I think of it as that same class, though, right? Like a like a writer that isn't being asked, a writer or or person in the world of words who isn't being asked to think creatively. Right. Uh, it's basically speech-to-text software, but in human form. Yeah. But, and a, not, a notary, all they have to do is attest, right? But they have to be able to read. What are the qualifications for being a notary? I don't know. They always have that book. My dad was one. I still have his notary stamp, but he was don't only one it. from like 1970 don't. to 1971. He, it didn't, was, he didn't want to pay the uh, $8.50 <clears throat> to re-up in 1972? It was something that I'm sure he got He got his stamp in order to fulfill some function for a company that he was trying to start. And then he, it wasn't like, I think you hang out that shingle and, and it's, it's a, a source of income, right? People need something notarized, and so they have to find you. I've never had to find someone. Maybe at some point in an escrow process, somebody found me one. But usually I could just go to a bank or credit union, and somebody there right. will be able Is to wit- witness the thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. Is there a test? This was in, the, this was in ye olden times. I mean, this was an embossing thing that uh, he would... He would put a put a piece of paper in this stuff and, and it's, crimp it's on it. It's a 3D, it, and it would put that that circular stamp notarized. My dad had one of those, but it just made his science fiction book say "From the Library of <laughs> Your Dad." I think today it must have been. I think today it's a stamp. They don't have the embossing thing anymore, do they? Uh, I think you, if you if you if you're willing to pay the big money to have an embosser made, I bet you they'll still. Make I think it. we need to do a omnibus on notaries public. Oh, I think we should. Is this an episode of I Love Notaries Public? Uh, let's do it. Okay, well, I'm not going to switch now. I'll do that two weeks from now. Uh, in the year 1889, uh, Horace Fletcher is 40 years old, and he's in a bad way. 
His health is not great. He he weighs 217 pounds, he oh, later writes. Boy, if I weighed 217 pounds, it'd be a banner day. But he's 5'6". Oh, I see. <clears throat> so so he's a roly-poly gentleman. Um, I'm looking at a picture of him in later, thinner, healthier times, but he's still kind of a, a mournful, sad-eyed, serious, New England schoolmaster-looking type. Um, a slightly less gaunt, like maybe a version of Woodrow Wilson who's just absconded with some company money. Yeah. He looks like embezzling Woodrow Wilson, is what I'm saying. I see. Uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty good band name. You, you know, that's actually the name of my uh, my uh, second class mage. <laughs> uh, so his hair is prematurely turned white. He's got indigestion all the time. He says he gets influenza twice a year. He's He never has a get up and go. You know, people back then are always worried yeah. about their vim and vitality. He doesn't have pep, I know. Look, I'm in my 40s. I don't have any pep. Wow, he looks like Woodrow Wilson, except <laughs> like uh, like an embezzler. <laughs> well, you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, he's. Uh, I love his like Colonel Sanders suit. And this is and this is uh, the picture. If you're looking at a similar picture to mine, this is uh, Colonel Sanders suit because he's living in uh, Louisiana at, yeah. at, at this point. He's um, at one point he, he's managing the New Orleans Opera House. I don't know what kind of scrivening background has prepared him to manage a, a second a small market opera house. <laughs> He's but, got a matching Homburg, and this seems to have a Nehru collar. Oh, that's early for that. I really like and white shoes and a cane. He's so he be, he becomes a dandy. But you have to imagine him at a slightly earlier career uh, phase in his career when he is falling apart, and a lot of people fell apart at forty back then. Anyway, uh, yeah, I could, you a know, lot of people do in our era. Looking looking at these photographs. He looks 1,000 years old, but I bet you he's 38. <laughs> but he, he's so dour. He's like really sad looking in yes. all these pictures. Maybe that's a, well, you know, that we've talked about this before, that people didn't smile much for photos just because it took, you know, 20 seconds to do the exposure. Hey, Ken, it takes a lot fewer muscles to smile than it does to frown. And he was not a fitness nut. That's why he's, that's why he's 80 pounds overweight. I see. Because he's not exercising those smile muscles. Yes. Uh, he has a dream of going to Japan. He has, uh, in fact, already sent all his housewares to Japan. He's a very early... Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that the first thing you do? I, it can't be the first thing. I have a dream. Because how are you going to open your soup <laughs> until, until, the, until the visa comes? Uh, apparently, he's well along in the... I'm saying he's so far along in the process, he has sent housewares to Japan. I see. He knows not to stick his chopsticks into the rice. Um, he's an early... What do we call white people who are just obsessed with the... Their life is going badly, and they think Japan will solve it. A Japanophile, yeah, or a weeaboo, <laughs> weeaboo, yeah, otaku's uh-huh. or, or something. Yeah, I don't know what the what those words mean, but it's a common thing now. You know, people on the internet just praising everything about the Japanese mean and and culture and physiognomy, and boy, uh, they wouldn't laugh at me there. Yeah, that all comes from manga culture. Yes, and uh, and they all own samurai swords. They got at the mall. Yeah, right. Like like. They have the little seppuku sword over their fireplace. I don't know if Horace owned a sword, but he's gone to the... Did he have a waifu pillow? <laughs> he did not have a waifu, so maybe. He has sent his uh, uh, saucepans onto Japan, and he's trying to get life insurance for his trip, and he has denied life insurance because he's such a high risk to the amalgamated whatever company. Oh, even then. Even then, the insurance companies would take take considerations into... Take those matters into consideration, such as... Do you frown too much? Are you roly poly? I just found out the other day that my premium. I mean, think about back then. If you're running a, if you're doing the actuarial table for a life insurance company in, you know, Louisiana in the 1870s, where I'm sure the people die at 52. Yeah, people yeah. are dying all the time, left and right. I just, I just found out the other day that my own life insurance 
I've had a policy for uh, 15 years or so with a very low premium because I'm a less risky guy. And I just found out that I'm just three years away from it just spiking. Like it'll be uh, $1,000 the first year and then it'll be $2,500 the year you turn 49. And then it's just numbers telling me how much more likely I am to have health problems, which is upsetting. So Horace, Horace Hetcher... Horace Fletcher had the same experience. He was, it was a real wake-up call to him. And he had a friend uh, in Louisiana who had a snipe estate, as well as a truffle preserve somewhere in France. So apparently a, he's For like, like snipe hunting? Yes. I guess. But snipe hunting is- You a, think it's fake? Snipe hunting is famously fake. Uh, there is a bird called the snipe. It just, the-, the uh, the custom of sending newbies out into the woods to find one is what's fake. I see. It's not like Bigfoot. There's a real snipe. Uh, people just fall for the, rel- the the related prank. Or maybe his uh, his friend is lying to him. But this friend is an Epicurean philosopher. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Epi- sure. Epi- Ep- Epicurus <clears throat> remembered today for his denial of... Uh, hedonism. Uh, you need. You, you, it, it, I mean, it's pleasure is to an Epicurean. We use the word a little oddly because Epicureans do believe in in pleasure as a high good, but just it must be a restrained kind of pleasure. You know, mental pleasure is what's important. The pleasures of the flesh are a little unseemly. But Epicurean has become synonymous with uh, with gourmet in 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 like common parlance. I guess that's true, although. Uh, Fletcher would have seen a distinction. He, in fact, named a book. Uh, he called a book, uh, what, Epicure and Gourmet. He thought that was two different kinds of things when he became a head writer. Oh, sorry, The New Glutton or Epicure. So I guess he, I guess he saw Epicureanism as a kind of gluttony. gluttony. But his friend, uh, the snipe uh, owner so, and truffle so, hunter. So an Epicurean considers... Uh, happiness to be the highest good. And so however you... But the Greek, the Greek Epicureans were skeptical of the idea that you could just get there through... Oh, through pleasure. Food and wine. I see. Right? Insofar as there are, as a modern distinction, uh, you know, we've, we've lost the original Greek philosophical intent of Epicureanism. And really, maybe the, the biggest distinction today is that gourmet has become kind of debased and middlebrow by the fact that it right. appears on... Uh, coffee bags of coffee at the supermarket. And, the, uh, the idea that pleasure and happiness are, are best pursued through, um, through a simple life un untrammeled by, uh, by like fatty foods and overwork. Right. Like what if you were just reading interesting ideas? Wouldn't that be more pleasurable? Yeah. Living in a hut and having, um, a slave boy massage your feet. His friend, his, philosoph- his uh, philosopher friend is apparently a bit more of a classical Epicurean who, who thinks it's important to, to get pleasures from these things, but not to overdo them. He tells them a story about William Gladstone, the, um, the liberal British prime minister, who made his children chew each bite of food 32 times oh, before swallowing. Here we go. And I think there's some... Connection between the fact that you have 32 teeth and therefore you should chew 32 times. It's a one for of, each tooth. Yeah. You have to, in fact, you have to chew each bite once on each tooth. So it takes a lot of tongue eye coordination. Now, this is the major issue at my dinner table because my daughter is a food shoveler 
she will eat her food as fast as she possibly can. And I am the same. I'm a fast eater too. I have to consciously slow myself down, consciously. When restaurants are like, hey, we're going to need somebody else at this table in an hour. I'm like, an hour? No problem. (laughs) In and out in 10. (laughs) But, But I have to, I catch myself sitting, you know, like, with a bite of food in my mouth and the fork with another huge bite on its way and say like, stop, stop, stop. And I think of this mantra, this chew your food X number of times, Mm -hmm. something that used to get yelled at. uh, And I've never actually said it to my daughter, like you need to chew your food 32 times, but I definitely all the time say like, Hey, take a breath, like put your fork down, relax. It's not, we're not being chased by anybody. She was riding her bike outside the bunker uh, just now when I was on my way in, and I asked her, "Hey, how?" Uh, she was like, "What's uh, what uh, what's your topic today?" And I told her about Fletcherizing, and I asked her, "How many times do you chew a bite of food?" And she says, "Well, it depends on the food," which is very astute. Uh huh. And I said, "Well, She's let's no dummy. well let's take a food that's not too crunchy and not too mushy." And she said, "An apple." And I thought, "Well, okay. How many times do you chew a bite of apple?" And she said, five. Hmm. All right. Which seems a, a little on the low end. Yeah. She's got big chunks of apple in her right now. Yeah. yeah. You should have said skibetti. I was going to say like a hot dog. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it's uh, <clears throat> in my experience, it's as fast as she can get it in. And then, you know, of course, then she's like, can I have another hot dog? But she would eat, as a nine-year-old girl, I think she would comfortably eat six hot dogs before she would stop. And she would only stop because we, we, were, we were out of You're hot out dogs. Because I had also eaten six hot dogs. I miss having the metabolism of, of a... <laughs> Nine-year-old. Those were the days when you could just eat six hot dogs. Futurelings, in these challenging times, we want you to know that we're all in this together. Are, are you getting emails like this from everybody, from every hotel you've ever stayed at, from every company you've ever bought a USB cable from? It's so exhausting. I don't care. I, it's I. Not only do I not care that Delta Airlines wants to wants me to know about all the things they're doing, but like the person that I that company I bought a. A friendship bracelet for my daughter for one time two years ago. I don't. I, I don't know. I care what their COVID nineteen response is. I preferred it earlier in the epidemic when no one had really anything to say, and so they were all just telling me they were monitoring the situation. Yeah. Oh, thank goodness! I'm. I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, uh, <laughs> what Coles is monitoring events as they develop. I, I hope they keep me in the loop. What I. What I want those emails to say is, um, in these trying times, we realized that we had. Two layers of unnecessary management in our corporate structure. And so we have uh, laid off seven vice presidents and we have taken their salaries and increased our employee health benefits. I, want, I don't even want them to lay them off. I would actually like them to, to give them up to us Oh, to do as we will. What would you do with seven vice presidents? Um, I mean, obviously I wouldn't get my own vice president would, unless it's a country that only, a company that only has seven customers. Would you hook them to a sleigh? I would hook them to a sleigh. <laughs> Yeah, maybe they should have a raffle. On Dasher, on Dasher. One of our customers gets all the surplus vice presidents (laughs) who screwed up our supply chain with just-in-time accounting. I want one of those emails to surprise me, though. I mean, Delta Airlines sent me one the other day that was like, we're blocking off the middle seats, so everyone is... Did that surprise you? there's There's like a window seat and an aisle seat now, and it's like, why wouldn't you just... Yeah, like, that's how it always should have been. <laughs> um, you should have just had those big '70s lounge chairs instead of these these terrible little porta potties. What what would surprise you? What about what? a retailer that's like 
Nordstrom now only sells um, like full body uh, radiation suits. I mean, the problem with retail is that I was already afraid that retail was dying and this isn't helping. What I want is to not return to normal. I know we have to return to some new normal, but I don't want to get emails from people reassuring me that everything's going back the way it was because the way it was wasn't that great. The way it was was clearly a problem. Yeah. I would like especially big companies to tell me that they have reorganized and that they have a new compensation package for their board of directors, which is not so lucrative for them. And I, and I want there to be more working from home and less commuting and less uh, you know, I mean, all the things that we all kind of keep hoping. Well, we're speaking to our community, John. What, what, um, what outlandish promises would you like to make them about? On our behalf? Yeah, about the Omnibus uh, in this new uh, world. We, as, as creators of Omnibus, in these trying times, in this economy, we want you to know that we sympathize with you and that we're doing everything we can to continue to make our quality programming without really changing anything about our corporate structure. We don't have any vice presidents to fire, is no. the problem. We were already lean and mean. Ken and I are going to continue to have generous compensation packages as we... For both of our employees. As we continue to downsize our two employees, the two of us. We are deeply appreciative, because we know times are tight, and we know some people um, are not at a place where they can donate to a podcast they like. And guess what? For you, the podcast is free, as it always was. We, we, with our compliments. Like the New York Times, during the coronavirus, yeah. we are letting you listen to our podcast for free. But unlike the New York yeah, Times. except all of our coverage <laughs> is now free. You can do the omnibus spelling bee and the crossword and the Sudoku every day for free. Um, for those of you who have the good fortune to still be uh, gainfully employed... In a tricky economy, we know many of you do support the show, and we thank you for that. Anybody uh, who would like to contribute to the ongoing health of the Omnibus can do so at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. We are here for the duration. And we would like to, again, reassure you, this is not the apocalypse. That should be self-evident by now. Um, what it is is just a colossal mismanagement and... Um, and bungle job. It's a bungle job, but uh, America has survived many a political bungle job. That's right. And also, you know, this isn't the first time that uh, that people have had to learn not to kiss bats. It's been a hundred years since the last time we had to learn this. That's right. So I understand why you don't remember. It happens every once in a while. It seems like some unprecedented loss of certainty, but really, the, the message of the omnibus is that it's not. It's really not. I mean, just the... Um, like just the presidential campaigns of 1972 should uh, should be all the evidence you need that these are not the worst of times. Uh, we've we've seen a lot worse than this. To most of our listeners, that sounds about as distant as the Spanish flu. So I don't know. I don't know if that helps anyone. But thank you, thank you for your support of Omnibus. Yeah, thank you, uh, thank you. If you can support Omnibus at Om at uh, Omnibus, no, at uh, Patreon.com/slash/Omnibus. And uh, also, do not vote for George Wallace in the upcoming election. Thank you. So this fact about Gladstone, his friendship with this Epicurean who's very into the pleasure of the senses, really makes Fletcher rethink his relationship with food. And the more he thinks about it, he realizes that 
his premises are man must have power, or I should say premises, to annoy that person who gets mm-hmm. mad when I say processes. Sure, his premises. His premises are the following. <laughs> man must have power over some part of the digestive process by divine design, let's say. Okay. Number two, you don't really have much control over anything that happens below the esophagus. The bowels are a big mystery. It's like eat food, question mark, question mark, question mark, profit. Does he mean man must have power in the sense that God gave us dominion over all the the, the birds and the and the yes, if flora and fauna? We're not apes, John. As one of the higher animals, man must have some ability to control his dietetic practice. I see. Okay. And it cannot be nutritionally... <clears throat> You know, you'd think the place to start would be in the gut, but you can't. It's a, it's a, it's a black box down there. Right, right, right. Who knows what's going on? There's miles and miles of, of passageways. And he decides then, therefore, the control must be in the mouth. This is where we can exercise our higher faculties to improve nutrition, would be in the mouth and in chewing. So he devises a series of five rules for better eating. First of all, is related to appetite. You, sh- you should not eat anything until you have true earned appetite. Oh, we were talking about this earlier. How many hours a day do you have to work before you feel like you've earned your biscuit? Exactly. And I actually do set up little treats for myself. Like, okay, if I just finish this page, then I can go oh, op- you do. open the fridge. Yeah. But do it you- always falls apart. Then it's like, if I finish this paragraph. <laughs> do you hide treats for yourself? Uh, I don't. That's borderline eating disorder stuff. But yeah. I do I do just kind of stand and open the fridge and just kind of stare as if something new has appeared since the last time I did it about an hour ago. I don't ever, I don't think anymore, uh, feel like I, ha- I don't deserve a meal. But I definitely, when I work hard on something, I will say to myself, you earned this meal. <laughs> yeah, I do that too. Like if I've like... Uh, you know, if we go for a hike or something, then I'm like, oh boy. Oh boy. You know, I'm going to eat six hot dogs. I've been out in the fresh air. Uh, number two, you, you leave the selection of food in the hands of your appetite. You eat whatever seems sounds best to you in the order that it occurs to you. Huh. So of the available food, just eat the thing that your body is asking for. I would and eat then the thing it's asking five for days a a, five days a week. I think you would for a while. There's good research that shows that, like, when people are not getting enough iron, they just suddenly feel like, start thinking about liverwurst. Oh. And if they're not getting enough vitamin C, they just start thinking about orange juice. Oh, okay. So your body knows, apparently. I think there is some support for this. But number three, you need to get all the taste out. The bite should be tasteless. The food should be tasteless by the time you swallow it. And really, you shouldn't even have to swallow. It should just kind of dribble out the back of your throat. Get the taste out. All the taste should be gone. Wow, I like this. Because this is a kind of Epicureanism, right? You, you're going to extract every bit of pleasure, but you're doing it in kind of a sound, staid, Victorian way. You're, I you're, like you're, this. You're, the end result is to turn your food into, into basically pap. Your food contains taste. Mm-hmm. And, and he's not wrong. And you are extracting the taste primarily, and the rest is just awful. And that's kind of true, right? Like, yeah. like if the, you know, most of the thing that makes celery taste like celery is just in the juice. And once the liquid has kind of been sluiced away in your mouth and you've just got a mouthful of those cellulose Well, it's strands. interesting to think that uh, it's a way of understanding eating where the nutrition is in the taste rather than in the roughage or in the vitamins. Ah, I see. Where you're, you're, once you have tasted it all, you have, you've, taken all of the nutrient out. Yeah, he has confla- he conflated two kinds of extraction. The, the, um, the enjoyment for him is the same. as Because this is a time before, I mean, so 
we think of Fletcher in the context of the progressive movement. The progressives at the time believed that the Industrial Revolution had not gone great. It had made a lot of things worse. Right. Um, but we had the tools now. You know, with with uh, modern innovation and efficiency, it would be easy to think of a few simple rules that would improve this kind of gross world we had created. So kids under 10 only have to work eight hours a day <laughs> in the garment factory. Or you chew your bites a certain number of times. He doesn't prescribe a number, but he experiments to see how many times you have to chew certain bites of food before it has no taste or texture left. At one point, he chews an onion for 722 bites. <laughs> and he's fine with Good. that. Good. I feel like he deserves it. <laughs> he's earned his treat. We talked about this in The Joy of Cooking a little bit, the idea of, of food and nutrition being part of the progressive movement. And it, it does seem like it's, it's, a, it's a collision of science and, um, and industrial process. It's science by people who don't have a lot of science. <laughs> it's science by people who don't have a lot of training in the sciences. Uh-huh. So as a result, they're like, nutrition, that seems like something, you know, like the right. food I eat, that's right. something I can use, bring common sense to bear on, because they're not actually going to invent a new, you know, electrochemical process. Right. Uh, so his fourth rule is just to concentrate on the enjoyment. You, you, you're, you should be 100% mindful about your food. By the way, a lot of these are going to sound like common sense food rules that you hear today in nutrition. Yeah. He's not wrong about all this. And number five, you eat as long as your appetite approves. So as long as your appetite so moves. Huh. But if you're chewing an onion 722 times. Yeah. How long are you going to be able to keep that up? Right. It really does have, uh, you know, he's not wrong about the effect that will have on food. Intake. Was he eating an onion like an apple? Like <laughs> just took a big bite of onion? You'd have to chew it 700 times. He calls it a garden onion. So it does really, I mean, there are onions that are sweet enough to just take a bite out of. Our, fa- our famous Walla Walla onions here yeah. in the Northwest, the Vidalia onions of wherever Vidalias are from. Uh, Michigan? I don't know where Vidalia is. I don't either. People are getting mad right now. People are listening. People, someone from Vidalia, Michigan. Georgia. Is, oh, Vidalia, Vidalia Georgia. Georgia. Okay. The sweet Georgia onion. That famous expression. I think he calls it a garden onion, so I'm just imagining... Just a big old white I mean, onion. I mean, it's also a shallot, he says. Or a yellow onion. He, he, oh, appar- wait a minute. Apparently, garden onion is his name for a shallot. Yeah, okay. E- eating a shallot, I, like... Chewing a shallot 700 times and chewing an onion 700 times are different occupations. It would be a little bit less, uh, what, caustic. Yeah. Um, So he decides to put these five rules into practice in his life by chewing more, essentially. He loses 60 pounds. It, it, uh, It gives him a new lease on life. Suddenly, he's a happy man. He says he never gets colds. He's full of, you know, vim and vitality and, and, uh, Vigor and everything's going great. Just chewing his food like three times more or six times more causes him to lose 70 pounds. Yes. And he no longer gets colds. He has become an unhealthy person. He was an unhealthy person. Now he feels like a healthy person. Now he has vim and vigor. He, uh, instead of going to Japan, he winds up in Venice where he's got a palazzo. And, uh, Whoa, how did he get a palazzo? Well, I guess the palazzo may come later. At first, I he's see. staying in a hotel, and uh, he becomes friends with a hotel doctor, a guy named Van Sommeren. And like a lot of hotel doctors, Van Sommeren's got abundant free time and is very interested in uh, in Fletcher's new dietetic philosophy. Boy, that's a, not a job that exists anymore. Hotel doctor. <laughs> I wish. That should be a They Might Be Giants song. <laughs> uh, and so Dr. Van Sommeren is, is, becomes his medical advisor who gives him scientific backing for his... Theories. And sure enough, um, Dr. Van Someren and his man Carl go for a 
uh, uh, trek in the Tyrolean Alps. Carl appears to be some big burly Tyrolean youth in native costume uh-huh. who carries his uh, who carries Dr. Van Someren's scale and helps push his bicycle on up hills on the steeper inclines when Dr. Van Someren does not feel like riding. And Carl and Dr. Van Someren both do a uh, Fletcher Fletcherist exercise on the trip with their slow chewing and appetite based eating. And they both, you know, they weigh themselves at the end of every day and they uh, weigh their poop as well. Oh, of course. Like many of these guys, Fletcher is fascinated by the body's excreta. Yes. He writes extensively about what he calls, maybe in in the delicate Victorian language that uh, would have occurred to him, digestion ash. Oh, that's lovely. Digestion ash. Because we hadn't understood, we didn't understand calories yet. Uh, Right. So we thought of the body as kind of a machine, but we weren't wrong. We thought of the body as a machine kind of magically processing taste and and, uh, and energy out of food. And as fuel. Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. And so what's left at the bottom of a, of, a, of a furnace? Ash. What's left at the bottom of your toilet? Digestion ash. And he, he claims in his books that following his principles will reduce, will make your digestion ash so economical that you can produce one-tenth of your current volume, which he considers to be a desideratum worth striving for. Interesting. Do you feel like you could cut your uh, trips to the bathroom by an order of magnitude by so, chewing more? So there, I, I went through a period where I was I was um, adjacent to some raw food people, and they had all these miraculous reports of how their uh, how their food ash how their, how their digestion ash had changed and was extraordinary. But it seems the opposite of the idea of eating a lot of roughage. Yes. Right? Like, uh, it, and, and doctors at the time told him this. That, you know, doctors at the time would be like, you need to have a bowel movement daily. And he would just shake his head sadly and think about how wasteful that is. Right, of course. <laughs> of course. You could be pooping one-tenth that much, sir. You are not, you're, you are not in, uh, extracting the proper amount of enjoyment right. from your intake. Do not tell me, sir. And his evidence for this is that when... Uh, well, first of all, his evidence should be his enjoyment. Although in none of these photographs do I see evidence of any enjoyment. Well, at least you're not seeing evidence of his digestion ash, Uh-oh. which I'm sure he was also photographing. Uh, he has Dr. Von Someren and Carl report on their digestion ash as they hike in the, or as they cycle in the Tyrolean Alps. And uh, his finding becomes that if you practice his principles, um, the digestion ash will come out in pillular form, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. so like a, I guess like a deer or a rabbit, right? Um, and will not have any uh, unpleasant odor. It will have an odor of warmth, like warm earth or hot biscuit. Wow! So, it, oh dear. Anybody who's you know this is really aspirational for anybody who like I assume you and me is not pooping out stuff that smells like baked goods. No, can you imagine if your poop smelled like hot biscuit? I mean, you might be tempted to take a bite. <laughs> <laughs> it, it would be very unhygienic. But that anyway, that's what he's going for. Like f- a diet so efficient that you hardly ever poop. And when you do, it's a nice little baked cake. Right. The idea being that he has not only extracted the taste, but but all the yes. nutrition and the nutrition and any bit of food is... Vol- less volume. Right. People who are not chewing enough are just pooping out... Uh, food enjoyment and, uh, and nutrition exactly, they could have had. That's what's in your poop is enjoyment that you missed out on and nutrition that you missed out on. Think how sad it would be. Like I'm like I, I, I I'm not sad when I poop a 99 out of 100 times. 
Um, I feel like it's an accomplishment, <laughs> and I feel like it has lightened my soul. But I've, been, I've been to your bathroom. I've seen the gold star chart. <laughs> <laughs> your name is the only one on it, though. Ken, gold star. When am I going to get my potty prize? <laughs> but imagine poor Dr. Fletcher always just disappointed by the frequency and volumes of his poop because he knows he could be working a little bit harder in the, in, the, uh, in the food filter, as he calls it, that he believes exists in the back of the mouth. I don't know how you could work harder than to chart, uh, the chew a shallot 700 times. <laughs> How much harder can a man work? <laughs> to him, that's just the beginning of his voyage. Um, so with Dr. Selmarin's medical di- di- uh, expertise backing him up, he begins to extol the benefits of, of his five-point plan. He says that there will be health benefits, uh, you know, immunity from illness, increased energy and endurance. But he's, he's roundly criticized for thinking that just chewing an onion too much can produce such a life change. Uh, in the press, he's... He's dismissed as, as trying to start a choo-choo cult. Oh, the press. Yeah, the press. They has, really got him. They've got a pun there, and they're <laughs> going to stick with it. But the other thing he's always extolling is how uh, the savings of his plan, the financial savings. Oh, right. Because if you're getting so much food out that your digestion ash is little tiny pebbles, you could eat less, you right? Sure, you need one. Your food budget is uh, is halved. So he very smartly starts talking to institutions about their budgets. Now, how is he making a living from this? Is he writing books about it or is he just doing that strange 19th century thing where somehow as a celebrity, you you somehow get to live in hotels for free? He may have a day job at this time, but beginning in 1896, he writes a series of books with charming Victorian titles, all really that could be called You're Not Chewing Enough. But instead they have names like Menticulture or The ABC of True Living, Happiness as Found in Forethought Minus Fear Thought. Ooh. Isn't that funny how that kind of management speak is 130 years old? <laughs> At least. We need to have forethought, not, not fear, fear thought. thought in this company. Let's open the kimono and talk about this. <laughs> uh, so all these... <laughs> so, <laughs> We're so, going to drill down on this now. Let's put a pin in that kimono thing and come back to it, John. Uh, so at some point he's making a living, but he's really approaching different institutions. He's talking to workhouses, prisons, schools, places right. with a limited food budget and saying, hey, I could cut your commissary budget in ha- half. And also increase happiness and ultimately virtue yes. in all of the reprobates in prisons and workhouses. Because think about in the progressive era, efficiency is the ultimate goal. And he is applying efficiency to the principles of things we do every day, eating and pooping. Right. I mean, you wouldn't be pooping every day if you were a strict Fletcherite. No, 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 of you'd course be, not. You'd be going two or three days every, at a time. Every, every three days, you'd go out to the garden and put some hot biscuit smell down on the... <laughs> Produce your, your small, efficient patty in the, in the fresh <laughs> or in the hot earth. Um, and this actually has some... Uh, he starts to see the fruits of his labors because it's also an age of corporate efficiency. And, you know, if you tell a military camp... Or if you tell a um, Tennessee, a Nashville-era missionary college that they can cut their dorm uh, cafeteria expenses by one half, they will certainly try it. And these places do, and they start giving him testimonials for his further books. And uh, his biggest success is with a guy named Russell Chittenden at Yale, who becomes very interested in the science behind Fletcherism and Fletcherizing your food. And uh, he does two things that are interesting. One, he has Fletcher, now 58 years old, face off in a test of strength and uh, athletics against the Yale sports teams, young strapping Eli's in their 20s, doing knee bends and bench presses and whatnot. He he sets them against one another in a contest of strength and stamina? 
yes, he's uh, he's kind of like a um, it's kind of a Marvel Comics contest of champions uh-huh. vibe, I think. Uh-huh. And he is surprised to find that Fletcher, now at fifty eight years old, can hold his own against the Yale football team. Uh, in Chittenden's account, Fletcher can lift a three hundred pound he can he can uh, leg press a three hundred pound weight three hundred and fifty times. I I have my doubts. Well, that's because you haven't been chewing an onion 770 times. It's given him superpowers. Wow. Uh, Chittenden also introduces Fletcherism to a colleague named Herbert Hoover, who, in the years to come, will head the U.S. Food Administration, you know, trying to feed our doughboys on the battlefield in World War I, and later the recovery effort in post-war Europe, all of which he will do according to the efficiency principles of Fletcherism. And then celebrities start to discover it. You know, in 1904, there's an article in The Lancet in, in which America's doctors endorse Fletcherism. Really? So the doctors have come around, although they kind of roundly criticized it at first, it sounded like. I mean, like. it's easy to make fun of a choo-choo cult. But, you know, a lot of the science behind it is pretty solid, and it seems very attractive in an age of efficiency. And You should chew your food. That's just unconscious knowledge. But you should also, I don't know... Uh, poop. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, his ideas accord with a lot of the efficiency-based thinking hmm. of the time. And so um, a lot of the most, a lot of the biggest names of the era are visit Fletcher at his Venetian palazzo and become uh, acolytes of Fletcherism. Uh, Henry James, hmm. who I guess has a, has, he's had a lifetime of problems with eating disorders. Hmm. So maybe it's, he's not the healthiest guy to start chewing his food a hundred times, but he becomes a fan. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who didn't, who never saw a weird turn of the century fad he didn't like. Uh, Franz Kafka starts chewing his food so long that his dad has to start eating behind a newspaper because he's sick of seeing his son chew each bite a hundred times. Well, it's, if Kafka did it, you, you know it's a, you know it's uh, got to be healthy, right? Healthy for the body and mind. Yeah, it, uh, I'm sure his dad thought it was Kafkaesque <laughs> having to having to watch that go on for hours at a time. Now let me a- let me ask you this: uh, It seems like in the short term, you could make uh, you could make a case for almost anything in the short term, but in the long term, did not people start to suffer uh, maladies as a result? Of some of this uh, practice? What kind of maladies do you think would result? Mm, I don't know. It, trying to reduce your out, t- trying to reduce your digestion ash. Oh, I see. If you're if you're withholding digestion ash from the potty chair, it's not good for your bowels. Well, and also if you are if if uh, your only idea of nutrition is that your body will tell you what it wants to eat, I believe that. Yeah. Even even though studies may show that if you start to feel scurvious, you'll you'll desire an orange. My body would really just want a chocolate chip cookie six times a day. That's the thing. I could eat chocolate mousse uh, day in and day out for a long time before my body craved an orange. And you don't have to chew it. You don't even have to fletcherize right. mousse. That's right. It's pre-fletcherized. Just suck it down. It's already body ash. Uh, nobody has any objections, seemingly. And in 1913, by 1913, uh, Fletcher gets his real coup he, he estimates at this point he has spent $100,000 of his own money. And keep in mind, those are $19, $13. Mm. That's a seven-figure amount today. Good, good money. Successful scrivener. On promoting Fletcherism. So apparently the books are selling at this point. He's invested the money back into promoting 
Fletcherizing, you know, getting scientific backing for it. And he finally gets the endorsement he's been after uh, in a New York newspaper interview. No less than John D. Rockefeller announces his faith in dietetic righteousness and general efficiency. And uh, he gives Fletcherism a 33-word endorsement that begins, Don't gobble your food. Fletcherize or chew very slowly while you eat. So he gets a sponsored tweet from John D. Rockefeller. There's no higher accolade. There really isn't. He, you know, he says, you know, now he can immediately say, if this is good enough for America's richest man. Sure. And, you know, we're not too different now. You know, if, if anytime Elon Musk does something stupid, you'll immediately find a million tech bros on the internet defending him with cult-like fervor. Why can't we just clean the virus by drinking cleaner or maybe injecting it or shining light on it? Something to try. Something yeah. to try anyway. I mean, it's we're gonna we're gonna research it. Hard to see what the downside would be. Sure. Um, so when you have a yeah, so exactly, it's a similar case where you have a a titan of industry, idol of millions, um, and suddenly you know Fletcherism is just incontrovertible truth. Because if you Fletcherize, you might be an uh, an oil magnate you and might, you robber might, baron. You might become a billionaire. It's it's hard to say. Uh, so Fletcherism becomes mainstream American practice. It is no longer just a choo-choo cult. And, uh, you know, the, the, it, it fades fairly quickly. Although I think my parents were raised with some ideas that you don't chew enough mm, yeah. and that wolfing down your food is somehow bad. And People still sh- wagged their finger at us and told us to chew our food more. Didn't you get that growing up? I certainly did. I absolutely did. And I think it was more like, but I think then it was more like, um, you're not chewing it enough. You're, yeah. um... It's bad for your digestion to have big chunks of pot roast. Yeah. Make sure you give it pot roast puree. Otherwise, you're going to have a a sore tummy. I mean, we understood more about how the body function works and how chewing works. Now that we know more about science, the the verdict on Fletcherism is a little bit iffy. I mean, mean, we know, for example, that he was right about digestion beginning in the mouth. There's an enzyme called amylase in saliva that uh, starts to break down starches as soon as you put that chocolate mousse in your mouth, John. Mm -hmm. The starches are are getting broken down. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, amylase is not produced in the mouth. It's produced in the pancreas. And if you don't get enough of that enzyme in your food in your mouth, you'll get plenty of it in the stomach and intestines. That's Oh, I see. It's not an issue. Um, but he was not wrong that you can extract more caloric content from food by chewing longer. In 1980, a study was done in which uh, one group was given... Uh, a delicious can of peanuts to eat, and it was not the kind where they open it and the snake comes out. Uh-huh. It was they were real peanuts. And Did it, they at least give him the 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 snake one first? I hope so. And that's, then the peanuts. That's what I would do. And the other group was given peanut butter to eat. You know, just the same peanuts but mashed, basically. And they found that uh, the peanut people, the peanut butter people, only excreted seven percent of the fat content of the peanuts in their digestion ash. Whereas the peanut people excreted a full 18%. Oh, right. Because there's all that peanut that's just going straight through. Going straight through. So like you could have extracted more metabolic energy from your peanuts had you just pureed them more in your mouth. Uh, In 2011, a revisionist study of Fletcherism was done in which they instructed people to chew for longer. And it was a small group, but they did find that people tended to eat less and healthier when they were chewing more. Hmm. And really, I think that has to do with the fact that, I mean, have you noticed this, that you don't feel full as soon as you eat, but you feel full yeah. about half an hour later? Uh, or something? That, that's, a, that's a bit of conventional wisdom you hear all the time, that if you eat more slowly, you'll start to feel full before you're done. 
And that's the thing that happens, I think. I think that's the ultimate value of Fletcherism, is you're eating slowly enough because you're chewing that damn onion, the shallot, 720 times, uh, that by the time you get to the... By the time your plate is clean, you're, you've, it's been an hour, and your body is aware that you feel full, and so you're not overeating on a stomach you mistakenly think is empty. Now, it seems to me that the proof has to be in the pudding here. Did, Literally. Did Fletcher live to be 105? No, sadly. Fletcher died of bronchitis when he was 69. Oh. Nice. Uh. Maybe, he, <laughs> maybe he's just picking a funny number. Hard to right? say. Bronchitis um, is no way to die. No, it's not. But it's probably related to other unhealthy habits of his. You know, if he was a Southern, if he was a Louisiana gentleman in the yeah. late, late 19th century, I assume he smoked. Smoked and ate rich food and probably drank and... So it's probably unrelated to his uh, unrelated to his eating practices. So I don't know if we can hold him responsible for that. But has he inspired you? Do you, do you think you would like to uh, to be a slower, more mindful eater now, even if you don't chew every bite 700 times? Well, it's nice because we often in Omnibus uh, will relay the story of some um, some sort of lay scientist uh, and... I prefer the ones that are vindicated to the ones that are eventually debunked. And here's one where I was, I was expecting. Why do you think that is? Why do you want the amateurs to be right? Well, you know, I'm an American. I believe that you should, that, you know, the backyard inventor and the, and in particular, the backyard philosopher. The backyard bleach injector. Yeah. I, I, I well, maybe not the bleach injector, but you know, I, I, we, I, I admire the, uh, the, the lay person with a, with a wide purview, someone who's trying to bring to bear their reading. Cause it's uh, flattering to us people without advanced scientific degrees. It says that maybe we could have a big idea. One yeah, of these that's right. I, I feel like big ideas are the, uh, are accessible to someone who's, um, who's laying in the backyard daydreaming and blowing dandelions. And so when, you know, when this man's insight ends up at least partially being pretty good food practice, you'd probably yeah. hear at a Weight Watchers meeting. Yeah, it it uh, it makes me want to uh, tonight at dinner tell my daughter to extract every bit of enjoyment from her food. Don't leave any taste left behind. I think you should change the name of your band to the Long Dinners. And that concludes Fletcherizing. Entry 478.AC0754, certificate number 32596, in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that in your era, anyone, any, any being doesn't already know to chew your food into submission. How do you know they even have teeth? Um, I, I imagine that they're probably, yeah, you're right. They're probably just, um, they're just sucking in liquid food already. And they, they think it's barbaric that we had molars. Oh, maybe not. Maybe it's just ultraviolet light being shined into their body. Uh, and that's how they get all of their, their power, all their human power. Uh, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have any digestion ash. Some of this stuff, uh, would be known to you only if you had social media or access to it in your era. Um, our current president will only be known as a social media phenomenon 
because it will be it will be regarded as completely inconceivable that he was actually the president for at least four years. We're gonna we're <laughs> gonna uh, we're gonna nineteen eighty four all the textbooks. He was never president. Uh, in any case, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, uh, we have at Omnibus Project archived all of our shows. Uh, our personal handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick. Uh, and uh, I sometimes tweet, uh, kids do the darndest things, tweets of oh, yeah, my, you of have my a, daughter's You have comments. a new brand now. And uh, You're a professional Star Wars blogger now in our, in our era. I know more about Star Wars than anyone would want to know. Congratulations, well, by the way. No, your, it turns out job. that that's not true because there are tens of thousands of people that want to know that much about Star Wars. I was just late to the game. You know it accidentally. Um, I'm also on Instagram, and you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com and send us some nice emails. Send us some mean emails. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me. Ken's the only one that reads them. But then he does, he does send them to me if they pertain to me or if he, if he, I, the thing is, I have no idea how many of them pertain to me. It could be 80% of them and you just, you just delete them all. Here's the ones I don't send to you. Hey, Ken and John, I love the show. Have you ever thought of doing an episode on... Uh, oh, right. You just cull all the good ideas and put them in your own file. No, I put them in a uh, Google Doc that you keep losing the link to, so you oh, don't know about them. No. Uh, but if somebody's like, I just have to say, John, you saved my life tonight. Yeah. I was standing on a bridge, and then one of your songs came on my Walkman, and those I send on to you. Yeah, those are nice. I, and I'm, I write most of them. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems to cheer you up so much. You need to move to a neighborhood that doesn't have so many bridges. Uh, please uh, enjoy all of our fan um, fan groups on various media. Um, there please are, enjoy them. There we, are a lot of you. lot of kick videos uh, and uh, Twitch, and uh, we're we're on Twink.com and on. I'm on Twink.com. I don't think you are. Grinder. I'm on there. I'm just not. <laughs> I don't have a profile. You're shopping. I'm just lurking. Uh, but certainly Facebook and um, what? Reddit. Discord. On Twitter, there's a wonderful uh, Omnibus Out of Context account that's look, very fun to look at. Look for the word Futurelings wherever you get your content. Look for the record with me on the cover. Look for the record with Futurelings on the cover. Um, you can mail us things, and a lot of people are choosing to do that, and we are delighted. Ken showed up today uh, to the bunker with a giant armload I had of an armload of giant boxes. I was like a, a comical um, 1940s housewife coming home from a shopping spree at Bloomingdale's. Yeah, that's right. I had a hat box. Uh, Todd apparently has sent you, I don't know if this is going to be a surprise to you or not, a Sony Walkman. Complete with batteries, some pretty nice headphones. Wow. This and, is for me? Yes. Uh, he wants you to take part in the renaissance of tape culture. And so he's recorded some of his uh, homemade imitation indie rock on this cassette. And he's also um, given you a USB stick with more of same, I think. You know, I have an in, uh, a, like an entire crate of cassette tapes, including uh, my favorite from the from the era... A cassette that had Iron Maiden's Killers on one side and Judas Priest's Screaming for Vengeance on the other. Boy, I wore that tape out. It looks like he might have a side project because one side of this tape, he's labeled the tape. Here's a sound you haven't heard in a while. One of the t sides of the tape is labeled 
Junkyard Todd, and the other is labeled John Lemming. Now, I know Junkyard Todd from, uh, from the internet. Um, that's well, now, interesting. Now, now you can enjoy his tunes. Now, looking at that... convenient cassette here, form. send me this whole pile of things. Looking at that... Uh, looking at that Walkman, I do not think of this as as an early era Walkman. I think of this as a mid-period Walkman. I would agree. Mid to late. No, I think you're right. Right? But it's, um, but who, I don't know how old Junkyard Todd is, and he may look at this and think, ha, 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 what an archaic Walkman. It's like us looking at a Victrola. And I think of it as like, huh, that's a pretty decent Walkman. Yeah, it's got mega bass. It does have mega bass, but it does not have a radio. That was always my, oh, my, that's odd. my standard for like a, Top shelf Walkman was that it also had a radio. I never had a real Sony Walkman. I always had some off-brand Panasonic yeah, or something, too. and but they always had radios. I think. Yeah. Well, I, the first one I ever got had a radio, and I felt like that put it above the actual the branded Sony Walkmans. It yeah. was a Panasonic or a JVC or something. It had a radio, and I remember walking around like listening to the radio and feeling like, oh man, that, I people now cannot possibly know what it was like. The first time you walked around with headphones on, listening to a cassette tape that you were carrying on your belt. I was just reading about uh, what reactions were early in the 20th century when people began to be able to listen to music by themselves. Because before you had always heard music communally in a concert hall. And the invention of the gramophone meant that people could sit in a room and listen to music by themselves. And I guess people thought it was weird and masturbatory. Like, look at this nutjob. He's sitting in his room listening to Scriabin, you know, like... Uh, sure, a social thing, but he's doing but it But he's himself. doing it alone. What a, what a kook. Like, he's probably got bodies in the cellar. Nowadays, when I'm out for a walk in our, uh, in our uh, socially distancing era, I find everyone has headphones on. And I'm, I'm, the, I'm absolutely the outlier. I'll see somebody, like, walking across the street, and I'll go, Hi, beautiful day. And they do that... What I think is really rude, that like, huh? Hold on, I've got to squint and take it out. Yeah, pull my thing out. What? I'm sorry. And they don't even pull it out. They just kind of pull it slightly out. Like, did you have something to say to me? It's like, you know what? No, I didn't. Keep on. The implication is, no matter what you're saying, it can't be as good as uh, this uh, NPR I'm listening to. Yeah, right. Or Bell and Sebastian or whatever it is. I mean, each person completely siloed. And you're not wrong. I mean, the Bell and Sebastian song probably is better than what you were going to say. Wrong. What were you going to say? I was going to say, nice day, isn't it? That's, I that's can't, some social I, compact I stuff. I can't think of a Bell and Sebastian song that's worse than that. Anyway, send us uh, your things to P.O. Box 55744 Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And, uh, and if you enjoy the show, uh, please support the show at patreon.com slash omnibusproject and uh, uh, take advantage of the access to bonus content in the form of an extra show we do where we read viewer mail and also other fantastic bonus content like we will send you signed copies of our show notes and now we're considering maybe even sending out signed chick tracks we certainly have a surplus of chick tracks here in the bunker and we cannot figure out what we're going to do with them so maybe (laughs) maybe we can sign them and send them to patreon donors that's patreon.com slash omnibus project Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, back when people still had teeth, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, and we all turn into digestion ash, 
this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But our prayer is that Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>